0: A lot of us say that we want more meaning in our lives, to be part of something greater than ourselves, to feel more connected to other people in the universe. This begins with becoming more connected with who we are and more self-aware of what's unconsciously motivating us. Welcome to Stoic Wellbeing. I'm your host, Sarah Michatel, an American in England who uses stoicism and other techniques to help my coaching clients become more present, productive, and open-hearted. I am here to help you too. Visit StoicWellbeing.com to learn more. As a listener of this podcast, you've already heard me talk about how the ancient philosophy of Stoicism offers guidance on how we can live the good life in the modern world, how to be less stressed, how to be a better listener, how to be more productive. But Stoicism is about a lot more than just improving ourselves on an individual level. It's about improving our communities and becoming an active member of society. No one is an island, says today's guest. That's actually the title of chapter five of the book he co-authored, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. I am speaking to Kai Whiting, an English researcher and a lecturer in sustainability and stoicism who is currently living in Lisbon, Portugal. Kai and I spent several hours talking together He is a new BFF and I definitely plan on visiting him in real life. I loved our conversation so much that I am splitting it up into a few different parts. And this week we are focused on why Kai decided to focus his book on Stoicism for the common good. And we get into a fascinating discussion on how contemporary cancel culture is a version of exile from ancient times and how Stoicism offers an antidote to cancel culture, as you may have heard already on this podcast, the Stoics really looked up to Socrates, who questioned everything. He was always questioning things. He didn't assume he knew everything, and he didn't shut down people who he disagreed with. He listened to them. So we are going to get into like what today's society is like when it comes to listening to canceling people, I found it very interesting and helpful. And I think you're going to like it as well. Let's jump in. Welcome, Kai. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to be here today, Sarah.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I know your your interest and what you've been working on over the years has been stoicism and the common good. And you chose to make that the focus of your book. So can you talk to me a little bit more about why this is and then also like what what role does community play in a Stoic's life? I found that the
1: contemporary Stoicism offering was very much fundamentally glued or, um, to, or even welded in some cases to the idea of what was in our control and what's not. And then you focus on virtue. And that tells me more about the modern sort of thinking than it does anything that the Stoics had to offer. So the reason why it focuses on the common good Is because it says one is called to be virtuous, but one is called to be virtuous not just for one's own sake, but for the sake of others. Because what's good for... for Basically, what we said in Chapter 7 was what's good for Sparta is good for the Spartan. So what's good for your community is good for you. And in the the contemporary sense, we're very individualistic, which is fine... As long as we use that individualism with one eye firmly, you know, or one foot firmly in the cosmopolis is in the, the global community. The minute we think that individualism is being separate and and highlighting that, you know, Kai as a person is more important than anything else, that's when I think it, it gets lost, especially if you're focusing on well, it's not, climate change is not really in my control, so I'm not going to do anything about it because at the end of the day, like, I can't stop the fuel companies extracting oil, right? So I just, you know, I just won't do anything. And this is so anti-stoic. It's like, well, it's not really what they said. They said like, okay, what can you do? How do I get to work? Oh, I use a, you know, I use a car. Could I get a bus? Is that, is that reasonable? Could I car share? Is there not a way to reduce this, this demand? for for that fuel. So it was kind of like trying to push back against this contemporary notion that we are individuals and we need to decide which is what is in our control as individuals. So the strikes were like, no, like you really, we don't want hypotheticals. We don't want like the trolley problem, like should I who should I should I should I push a fat man in the way to save other people? No, they were like I want a realistic problem that you can see on the street. What's happening and how do you focus on the common good? There? How do you focus on the well-being of that individual? How do you use your reasoning to do that? And so I felt like if stoicism can give us an answer to how do we deal with like, economic inequality, how do we deal with climate breakdown, how do we deal with tribalism, which is rampant right now in the U.S. Yes. and yes. the U.K. Slightly, slightly, slightly better, but going the wrong way. How, if socialism for me can't answer that question, then there's not much use, because I think those are the challenges we're facing right now. I, I don't know if you'd agree with me, Sarah.
0: No, I, I do agree with you. And I would say, yeah, the decisions we make on an in individual level, we should also be considering the Common good. You, I mean, you talk about your book as kind of being in a reaction to other books that are out there, but I would also say that I think your book is a, is a good introduction to Stoicism for people who are interested in, you know, helping the world. You talk. I mean, your work is in sustainability. There's a lot of people who could be introduced to Stoicism because they want to do good works and have a more meaningful life. And so, yeah i think this could be a good book for anyone really
1: well, thank you It's very kind of you to say so we tried to tell the story of stoicism through the stoics themselves of course like we had to use like some kind of ultra license right creative license because we don't have a lot uh, once you go beyond a few fragments but we tried to create that life Like, what does their world look like because we often say things like oh you know th- these challenges they never face these challenges that we have today. Well, tribalism was a, was a problem, and maybe climate breakdown wasn't, but certainly things like slavery—you know, a great big institutionalized slavery—which is not the same as um, slavery in the U.S., but nonetheless was slavery. So it's not that they had easier problems to solve. It's just we forget that because we're not they. Us. So we try to say, okay, what is what are they facing, um, and we try to draw parallels between the actions in the contemporary sense, which is something I did not in the the book. But for example, I just wrote an article talking about cancel culture, and we said cancel culture is a form of exile. So stoicism is useful because it basically helps people who have been exiled, or people who want to decide whether they should exile somebody. So we said, well, cancel culture is a form of exile. So therefore, you know, contemporary stoics could lean on ancient stoicism to help them in that, to make a decision. Should they cancel someone? Should they not? What do they do when they've been canceled?
0: Tell me more about this, because this is such a hot topic. (laughs)
1: Well, people actually said to me when I wrote this piece, is this the most important thing you could have done, Clyde? Isn't the war, literally, this this is almost verbatim, isn't the war in Yemen more important? And I paused for a moment and um, I said, I don't speak Arabic. Yes. I don't speak Arabic. I'm not in Yemen. If I put something on social media, I am betraying those people because it would be a very superficial understanding of what is actually going on. So yes, if I was in Yemen, or, in, you know, or I had power over Mohammed bin Salman, I could speak Arabic, I understood the nature of the problem, yes, I should probably write an article on Yemen. But the truth is that I'm woefully ignorant about the war in Yemen. Like, I'm not saying that I obviously recognise that what's going on is, is, is a war crime. I personally think it's a war crime. But that doesn't mean that because I think it's a war crime that I should write about it. Because that doesn't make me an expert. That just makes me have an opinion. Whereas with cancel culture, I'm an academic, right? I have colleagues and I've seen it with my own eyes on both sides. So a lot of people on, on the right will say that the people on the left are snowflakes. And the people on the left will say to the right that cancel culture doesn't exist. But I've literally seen it from both sides. Regardless of position, there's people who want to cancel and people who want to be who, who are cancelled. And that's always been historically the case. The, the question that Stuart would ask is, is it just? Of course, there are some cancellations that are just, and there are some cancellations that are not just. But that wasn't really the point of our article, because we called it, so as Jonathan Church and I, we called it, is Storism an antidote to cancel culture? Because we felt that if you cancel somebody, you actually, within, you know, there's some terms that you need to cancel, but in most cases, I would argue, it actually robs you of the opportunity to exercise virtue, to exercise justice, self-control and wisdom and courage, right? And it doesn't mean we give a license to anybody who wants to talk, but it does mean that we don't sit there and say, for example, I feel triggered, therefore we should cancel it. If you feel triggered, you should perhaps move out of the room, but that doesn't mean that everybody should be unable to hear what a speaker has to say. Because it's only in Socratic dialectic or only in the dialogue that you and I, Sarah, find the answer to a very complicated question, right? It's not that any question can be answered just by one side. It's through the tussle, it's through the I call the virtuous dance to know what is not only what is true, what is reasonable, right? Because truth obviously it matters, but also what do I, how do I respond to that? given truth so we argued quite strongly that to just use cancel culture as a as a mechanism to silence people isn't just bad because it's silences people but it's bad for you because you basically say oh it's too hard it's too painful for me to listen to so we argued that that was an actual very Epicurean way of looking at it so they said that the worst thing that can happen to you is losing your tranquility so either suffering a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of for example a lot of pain so if you think that suffering pain is very bad then counsel culture makes a lot of sense, as does safe spaces. On the other hand, if you say, well, pain can be used for virtue, and that's what matters, then there's not much sense in counselling people, right? Unless, for example, you might say, well, we don't tolerate the inciting of violence, and you, have, you, know, you explain why that is, and if you incite violence, we will remove you. So it was really funny because <laughs> people then threw a load of vitriol on me for being, you know, daring to say something. I was like, but you haven't read it. <laughs> it was obvious that they hadn't read it because that wasn't the point we were making. We weren't saying that counterculture was good or bad. We just said that it robbed you of an opportunity. And if you wanted to claim to be stoic, then you should be very careful about how you sculpt, uh, uh, sculpt your own character.
0: Do you feel like it was your stoic duty to speak up on this topic? It's a very good question, yes. Because I'm an academic,
1: because I saw it and I couldn't... I couldn't just shut my eyes to it and i didn't want to blame the left or the right because actually stoics are not called to be left or right we're called to be reasonable and to listen listen to reasonable arguments on both sides so i thought that was a good exercise of like okay do i really like do i really believe in stoicism like do i really believe that this is reasonable to what extent do i believe it's reasonable which is why we said if you think pain is really really the worst thing that can happen to you then yes we should have cancer culture if, on the other hand, you you have a virtual ethics framework, then it doesn't make any sense. It's actually illogical. Yeah. And people didn't like that argument very much because they wanted it to be, I basically didn't want to pick either side. I didn't want to say that cancel culture was good or that cancel culture was bad because actually in the stoic sense, it makes it does not make the moral difference. It depends on why you cancel. It depends on how you cancel. It depends on who you cancel and who is canceling. because people say, oh, I'm canceling somebody very powerful. There was a really good example at my old university, so I knew a lot about this case, speaking to my colleagues, of a student who was aged 29, was asked a question in a classroom about what she thought a woman was. She answered, was put on mute, and is now threatened with the cancellation of her degree. Now, if you're a teacher and you invite a student to respond, you should be mature enough to either correct that response or at least say, well, there's a bit of a nuance there. Let me have a caveat here. Right. You said this, but this caveat could be this and not silence someone. That's, to me, very bad pedagogy because you're not actually it's not education at that point. It becomes political. And that individual, even if if I agree or disagree with her, I don't think we should be able to cancel her degree after she worked four years to get it. And that's the problem. It's not only about canceling famous or powerful people. I I would say in that case, actually, the powerful individual in that particular situation is the university as in the legal individual, legal entity. And the student is actually powerless. So I found it really odd that people on the left were saying that she should be cancelled. And I was like, that's not traditionally the left's position, is it?
0: Could you talk a little bit briefly about like Stoics going into exile, being forced into exile? Yeah, so actually people
1: miss the point of exile sometimes. They think that exile means you get to go to a place you didn't want to go to. That's not really why exile is bad. The reason why exile is bad, Sarah, as you probably when you think about it you'll recognize, is that outside the city gates it was a no person's land or a no man's land, but let's call it a no person's land. It was, it was a place where you'd get robbed. It was a place where you'd go missing. It was a place where you were killed. It was a place where you had no protection because you were beyond the city gates. It was a place where you had no one you could depend on. There was, prob- there was no running water. There was no food easily available. And you, were excess- you know, it was excessively likely, extremely likely, sorry, that you would have been robbed and killed. No one would have thought anything of it. So people think that exile is about going to a place that you don't want to go So It's actually saying, we don't care about you. We don't care if you live or die. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the real because you think about it. If we might say, oh, it's, you know, for example, "Oh, that Crete is like I don't know four hours by by car from this location. It's like actually they were walking. If they were lucky, yeah. they'd have a horse or a donkey. Yeah. How long do you think that took? Did they have a guarantee of fresh water? No. When they stopped, were they likely to be robbed? Yes. Did the people that were robbing them, did they know who they were? They, they didn't have like I don't know Instagram or something, so they didn't even list, they knew they were rich, but they didn't know who they were. So that's what it is. It's like you are no longer anybody. You're no longer important. If you die, that's fine. So that, I think that's the thing that we miss with back to which is why I think cancel culture is a bit like that. Publicly It's like we don't mind if you lose your job. We don't mind if you lose your following. We don't mind if you get kicked t- Twitter. We don't mind if you lose your your name in the in the circles that matter to you. Right. It's the yep. same the same thing. So. A lot of the Stoics were exiled. Like Marcellus Rufus gets exiled twice for like disobeying like what the what the, the emperor wants, basically. And it's it's just such a powerful thing when you think about that he's literally told you're a nobody, we don't care about you anymore. And he's like, well, my principles matter. They they matter sufficiently. And I think that's something really really powerful because he when you when it's not just that you have to go to a place you don't want to go to. It's like you are very likely to die. And that's an entirely different way of looking at exile and looking about what that means, right? Because it's not only just losing your comfortable house in one place and going to another. It's literally losing your identity. Because uh, people forget, uh, we wrote about this for the American Philosophy Association, that people often say that Stolism a white rich man thing. And I'm like, well, Xenocitium wasn't white. And Cleanthes of Assos isn't from Athens or what either. So those two are not from Athens. And it says so in their name. Your, your location was incredibly important. More so than, say, your family name, because we go Zeno of this place, Cleanthes of this place, Chrysippus of this place, Spheras of this place. And people forget that. That's how it's really important. And even that's why Epictetus says, do not, you know, somebody asks you where you're from, do not say I'm an Athenian. Because what does it matter if you're an Athenian or you're from Corinth? Because that was people's main identity back then. It was really their home city state. It wasn't necessarily their skin colour, it wasn't necessarily their religion, it really was where they were from. So that's another thing that it was doing, it was unsettling a person's identity.
0: I interviewed Donald Robertson a while back, and we were talking about how like heated things have gotten in the U.S. and how a stoic practice to sort of bring that down and to avoid canceling everyone you know <laughs> is to get curious and start asking questions, like but genuinely curious questions with other people. And I, I really took that to heart and also you know, the concept that in other people's minds, they're doing the right thing or like they're right in their own mind and have made that an actual practice in my life. And I have to say it has worked every time, which is amazing. And even if you're not like convincing people over to your side, you can end with saying like, listen, I know your heart's in the right place. And I hope that you know that my heart's in the right place. And then and we can leave it at that.
1: It is a very, I mean, the banality of evil is what you were talking about, that nobody does evil because they think they're evil. Absolutely. I mean, I remember somebody very angry with me uh, on Facebook about something I said about stoicism, and they were a flat earther, actually. And I was thinking, well, a flat earther isn't a hard person to persuade. <laughs> the yeah. reason they're a flat earther is because they haven't thought about it very deeply. They've stuck to their guns rather than go, OK, what does the science say? So I just thought, OK, do I need to attack this person because they're a flat earther? So I started to say to him, we're on the same side. If you believe that the best thing that you can do is, is, is you know, be influenced by stoicism so that you can live a life worth living. I think I said to him, the good life. Um, then we're on the same side. And he, he's whole, he couldn't attack me. Like, because he, he, he was so expecting, because that's what happens, unfortunately, with two flat earthers, as far as I'm, mm-hmm. I've spoken to them. They're so used to getting attacked. They go into defense mode, like, automatically. And he, was, he had no defense because I was like, we're on the same side. He was like, oh. <laughs> and he listened then because I wasn't attacking yeah. him. I have no interest in attacking you. He said, why well, I believe this. I said, I don't have an issue with that belief. It doesn't bother me that somebody's a flat earther. It makes no difference to me because I'm not an astronaut. I'm not, I'm not a pilot. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference to my life, right? He's not my student. I'm not teaching him geography. And so the point that I was making was about living a good life. And he got upset because of being something to do with being a flat earther and what was truth. And I was like, you can have that truth. It doesn't matter to yeah. me. Yeah. that's not my battle that's again i guess you as you and i are saying like pick here you know we all got to die on a hill somewhere which hill do you want to die on and i wasn't willing to die on the the world is round hill in an yeah. argument
0: <laughs> just going back to like cancel culture and like finger pointing and everyone feeling like they need to get their like their way is the only way and you know people don't <laughs> ever respond well when you're pointing a finger in their face so so I didn't get a chance to read your article yet, but can stoicism save us from cancel culture?
1: I think it can save people individually when they think about it. Like if they, if they think like, what is the worst thing that can happen to me? And the answer is I can lose an opportunity to grow. I can lose an opportunity to, you know, build my character. Then cancel culture loses its power because it's no longer about avoiding pain and being in a tranquil situation. So I actually talk about in another article that's going to come out in the next few weeks, like people who are keyboard warriors being Epicureans, again, in their Epicurean garden or being in their tranquil garden, that when things get too heated, they then scurry back and sit on a chair. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can, but it's just, you need to be coherent then and say, the most important thing to me is tranquility. I do not want to be perturbed by other people's ideas or problems, because that's the other thing with council culture is like... You're actually just cancelling it rather than solving the problem.
0: You mentioned like the Epicureans, and could you just briefly talk about the difference between the Stoics and the Epicureans? Similarities and bi- the biggest difference.
1: So the sim- the biggest similarity is that they're both looking to live the life worth living, the life that is what they would say is the good life, right? To the, to the Epicureans, the the most. Optimal psychological functioning human being is a person who is not suffering any form of or any form of unnecessary pain. So there are necessary pain, but unnecessary pain, and is in quite a calm, tranquil state. So they actually used to sit in a garden, which where I talk about the Epicurean garden because they felt that they were not perturbed by people. So other people's problems weren't an Epicurean's problem, right? They literally were like, okay, I can be virtuous. But I am virtuous in order to remove unnecessary pain and to access tranquility. Whereas a stoic said, no, 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 you're missing the point. The point is that you can use pain or pleasure. So when things are easy and when things are hard to shape your character, you shouldn't shape your character in order to get pleasure because you're because that's actually you're going at one point you're going to say, do I do what's right or do I do what's pleasurable slash easy for me? So the Stoics actually said, like, other people's problems are your problems, if it says something about your character. So when you ask me that question, like, did I feel that I had to say something it's against culture, the prevalence of counterculture, the answer is yes, I felt that if I didn't, I would actually, it would say something about my character because I would feel like I didn't have the courage Mm. To stand up and say, "I'm not on your side. I'm not on your side." So I had both sides pretty angry, right? It was so anti. It was so anti-Stoic Facebook that weekend. I was even on holiday that weekend, so that was not good timing. But um, yeah, I was like, "Do I do what's right, or do I do what's easy?"
0: Well, I appreciated that conversation, and I appreciate that your book focuses so much. Like we've mentioned this a bit, but your book focuses on Stoic actions which I really like. You're ta- you brought in like ancient stories, but also modern, modern stories of how people are, are acting in a virtuous way. I was wondering if there was anyone in particular you wanted to bring up. I, I really liked the Chobani example. But anything you want to talk about?
1: So the CEO of Chobani Yoga, which is an American, I should, it's an American Greek yogurt company, uh, run by a Turkish Kurdish man who came to the U.S. in the 90s to learn English, and then started up a a yoga company because he just felt that that was the right, again, that was the right thing to do. The interesting thing about Shabani Yoga is not that it's particularly yoga, although it is Greek and he is Turkish Kurdish, right? So that's quite an interesting thing there. The idea that he wanted, Shabani is a company that is very open to uh, people who are are, refugees or economic migrants. And the idea is that once people, Can can work and they have stability in their in their job. They then put down roots, and when they put down roots, they build community. So he made you know they the whole company's vision is to have the ethos of it doesn't matter if you're a refugee or you're a you know native native indigenous person or if you're a you know white European derived American. If you work for Shabani, you're a Shabani employee, and that's what matters, right? So it's a very sort of How can we uh, create a product which not only is a good product, but talks about our values? So he, you know, they made sure that their workers had some shares and that they have, which is incredible that the U.S. doesn't have paid maternity and paternity leave. And they said, you know, how is it possible that we can say that we care about our employees and yet they have children and we we don't even make sure that they're okay during that period? So the whole idea is to like, it, it says, okay, we need to make money. We need to exist. And that is the goal of a company is to literally make money but how can we do that in a way which champions values that go beyond the mere making of money because i'm not going to say that a company shouldn't make money right that wasn't the point the point is like can we maybe we make a little bit less but we do so because we value or make less profit rather than less per se because we value the the workers and i thought this was so important because we do get into the to the blame game, it, even you know the UK. I would say the UK is not particularly racist, but incredibly xenophobic. But it was an idea of like, how can we integrate and share a common goal and see beyond our differences? What can we What can we do there? And I said it was quite funny because it was a yogurt that we wouldn't actually necessarily eat ourselves, but mm-hmm. I still felt that the principle was true that he had overlooked. The tick box of this person's a problem, and said, How can I make this person a functional, productive human being? So when they said things like, Oh, you shouldn't get immigrants because they don't speak English, that we'll get translators. And that's a very stoic answer, like, okay, so the problem is that they don't speak English. Okay, can we get a translator? Yes. So the problem goes away. And that's a solution-based approach rather than a problem-based tick box approach, going, well, they don't speak English, so we can't employ them. Okay. Maybe we shouldn't invite them because they really, really need the English to be, you know, great. And they're, you know, they're speaking or maybe get a translator. Can we get a translator? Yes. They don't have cars. We can't employ these people because they're so poor. They can't have a car, which is a massive problem in the US. Can we get a bus? Can we buy it? Can we pay for a bus for them to go? So he started to ask, again, better questions. And the whole point of being is to say, and we do say this, we don't have the answer for you. Because that's not self-help. That's the irony of self-help, right? It doesn't help you because it's basically you're still being bottle fed. How can we help you create questions in your mind so that you can get the answers? Because I'm not the best placed person to answer your problem. You are.
0: Yes. Well, and they were throwing up all these obstacles. And so, you know, obstacles, the obstacle is the way. Ryan Holiday book, but of course, like the core stoic principle, But yeah, I love that story because it's such a good example of being a true citizen of the world where you are not just like trying to protect your own individual tribe, but bringing everyone into the collective and helping them grow, even if it's not the easiest thing to do. That's all for now. Check out the show notes for the link to Kai's article on stoicism and cancel culture and subscribe or follow this podcast to hear the next episode where Kai and I talk about what it means to be a global citizen. Until next time, have a beautiful week wherever you are.